Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. When this baby came along, who I'd admittedly not really prepared for, um... I just didn't know what to do like because I defined myself by being good at my job and suddenly I didn't have a job to be good at and I really went well, what's the point of me like what what am I doing I remember around day nine or ten my husband coming home from work and I screamed at him and said I had ruined my life Welcome to Shameless, the podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. This week on the show, there's a little less of the dumb stuff because we are joined by the inimitable Jamila Ritzvi. In her own words, Jamila is an author, presenter and political commentator. She's the author of the best-selling Not Just Lucky, a career manifesto for millennial women and The Motherhood, an anthology of letters about life with a newborn. Right out of university, Jamila worked for the Rudd and Gillard governments before leaving Canberra to head up Mamma Mia as editor-in-chief. Just because there's not enough work stuff in her wake, Jamila is currently editor-at-large of the Nine Network's Future Women, where you may have actually heard her as host of their podcast, Future Women Weekly. But outside of her career, Jamila Rizvi is warm and kind and so, so clever. In the last few years, she has battled a brain tumour and given birth and shares the kind of wisdom about career and life in this interview we hope to just wrap up and hold on to for some time. We think and hope that you love her and this chat just as much as we loved having it. Here's Jamila. Jamila Rispy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We start every episode with the same question, which is what have you been watching, reading or listening to this week that you'd recommend? That I'd recommend? Um, I am absolutely obsessed with The Good Place and I know I'm a little bit late to the party on that one, uh, but my husband and I discovered it the about a week ago and we've watched far more than is appropriate in a week. <laughs> I think with The Good Place as well, you have to just... Uh, really accept the weirdness and let it all wash over you because it gets so bizarre so quickly. Yeah, first episode, you're like, what is this? (laughs) So what is it? Because I haven't seen it. I don't know much about it. So the premise is that you've got – so The Good Place is like heaven, basically. So the main character, and I promise I'm not spoiling, dies like straight away (laughs) and she wakes up in heaven and there is a good place and there is a bad place and she wakes up in heaven and she's living her life and she realises very, very quickly in the first episode that she wasn't meant to be in the good place. She was meant to be in the bad place. And it's about the unravelling of that story. That sounds interesting. It gets so weird. I cannot emphasise that enough. You're giving your own spoilers. It's amazing. It's the best. It's so funny as well. The script writers on that must be geniuses and it's got Jamila Jamil and... Yeah, and she's just Mm. incomparably awesome. Yes. In many ways. What about reading? Do you have much time to read? Are you reading much at the moment? Yeah, I do. Reading's the one thing I carve out time for no matter what. Um, So it's always a priority. At the moment, I'm in the middle of Accidental Feminists by Jane Caro, which is awesome. And I like to think I'm pretty well read on feminist stuff, but it's really nice having something to read 
that is from a woman who is very firmly in my mother's generation but is trying to communicate the experience of that generation to me. Mm. And I don't know, I feel like I've got more empathy for my mum and for my aunts and I'm seeing things that I didn't see before and I'm just really enjoying it. And Jane's just witty and brilliant and all those things. So do you think it would be a good book for young sort of millennial women to read for that exact reason, to understand their mum's experience or whoever I might be? Yeah, I think so. You know, every generation thinks they're the centre of the world and that everyone lived like them beforehand, right? And we think that the difference between us and our mothers, for example, is, oh, we've got technology and they didn't have that. You know, not true. There are so many fundamental differences. And you know, even just the nature of how sexism played out in the 70s compared to now, you think you know that stuff, but Jane explains it not just on a sort of policy issues level, but on a day-to-day level. I think something that really frustrates me as well is when people look back on that era with rose-coloured glasses and people say, oh, it was so much better back in the 80s and the 70s and whatever, because then you read a non-fiction book like Jane Carrots and you realise all of the inequality and it's often white men who are looking back at that time and going, oh, it was such a good time. Everything was so much more simple before PC <laughs> culture. You need to read Richard Glover's yes. new book, which is, avocado. I think it's The World Before Avocado. Yes. Yeah, and which is exactly that. It basically says we have thought to ourselves, we've romanticised the 60s and 70s actually like everyone was dying because they didn't wear seat belts <laughs> and it just goes through all these massive massive problems okay maybe that's another one on to our list as well yeah speaking of the 80s i was thinking that's when you were born it would have been the- stabbing the uh, dark with the math yeah, i know what a segue what was your childhood like uh i was born in the late 80s um i am older <laughs> than I, <laughs> no i am younger than i look um, um what was my childhood like? I, I actually – I look back on it and think I had a pretty idyllic childhood and I don't know if I've just skewed my memory entirely or my parents brainwashed me really well. But I grew up in Canberra. I grew up very distinctly middle class, a child of a teacher and a public servant, didn't really know that there was anything outside of Canberra. <laughs> um, I grew up in a family that was really focused on multiculturalism, I think. That was probably – the thing that from a political sense shaped my childhood more than anything and this sense of government being the way to change people's lives. Did that come a lot from your dad because he was in the public service or your mum too because she was a teacher? Definitely came from both. Um, Dad, the public service thing, yes. My dad is one of those you know, traditional frank-and-fearless public servants won't tell you how he ever voted ever, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. Um, And he had a really strong sense of justice and also I think a strong sense of what that we should be grateful so my dad um, migrated from India when he was a kid and his family migrated before the white Australia policy was abolished as part of the test case families to I don't know what they thought they'd do (laughs) but anyway as part of the test cases and he was part of the first year of test cases so when he moved to Australia he was there were no Aboriginal kids at his school and so he was the only kid with dark skin and yet my dad has always grown up despite I think copying some serious racism he's always has had this sense of the opportunity that was given to him by this country and the importance of paying it back. Very much migrant mentality. So how aware were you then as a child that your identity was informed by your culture and and that kind of, you know, what was around you? Were you very hyper aware of it or was it not something that crossed your mind? Because Canberra's very white, is that right? Super white. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super white. (laughs) I've just come from Canberra, got off a plane from Canberra and I'm always like, ah, you know that meme that's like white people everywhere. That's how it feels. Um... I wasn't aware of it, I don't think. I, I, I certainly didn't feel aware of it. And as a kid growing up, I grew up speaking English at home. My dad, I think, ran away from his culture a little bit. When he married my mum, that was quite controversial and he fell out with the family to an extent. And so to me, it wasn't really something we talked about that often, uh, certainly not in a negative way. Uh, we didn't eat a whole lot of Indian food at home because I had a very parents with very traditional gender roles. So my mum did all the cooking, like, and so her attempts at like culturally interesting food was like <laughs> patak's curry, like everybody else. You know what I mean? Like all the other Westerners. Um, 
Yeah, but I think as I got older, I became more aware of it and more interested in it. And I think it was around sort of 15, 16, I started becoming quite frustrated with my dad that we didn't know more and that we hadn't been taught more about where our family was from. But do you think back then it was far more of like a survival mechanism in this kind of country that in order to quote-unquote make it or assimilate quote-unquote again, that that's the kind of thing you were expected to do? Yeah, I think so. I think it was about fitting in, right? Yeah. And when you're a kid especially, I mean, that's as an adult you want to stand out and as a kid all you want is to be exactly the same as everybody else. And I think for my dad... That's what he tried to do. And he had this really obvious uh, thing about him that meant he wasn't like everyone else. And he sort of dealt with that by ignoring it as much as he could. What was it then that made you want to go into politics yourself? Because that's where your career really started after university. Yeah, middle of university, actually. I um, I fell in love with politics. Oh, God. Um, I think I'd always been interested in public policy and issues. It was something my parents talked about a lot around the dinner table. Um, I have really strong memories of them talking about going to vote, you know, on election day and, you know, what we were doing and why democracy was important, that kind of thing. And in Canberra, you are really entrenched in it, right? People introduce themselves by the acronym of their their government department. Like that's a Canberra thing. Um, so I, I think it is sort of inescapable to an extent, but I did an assignment when I was in year 11 on Paul Keating's reforms to the Australian economy. And I was just like, I'm really into this guy. Like, I think he did a really good job. And uh, I wanted to join the Labor Party. And uh, my dad said, you are not joining the Labor Party. You're still a child. And uh, so I joined the day I turned 18. And then when you were in university and you were doing a lot of campaigning then, even at university, right, at what point did you think, I'm going to start applying for jobs or did you start interning? Like, how did that process work? How do you land yourself in the Prime Minister's office working? Yeah, I worked like casually around university. I discovered very quickly I was a very bad waitress and so I needed Same. an alternative. Same. <laughs> Would often confuse order with water. <laughs> it happens. Tough, tough. Mm. Um So I did my very bad waitressing in first year uni at the press club, which is where all the big speeches are given in Canberra uh, once a week. And I just liked it because it was broadcast on TV, which meant you couldn't do any work, like you couldn't do any food or beverage service while they were screening it. So I got to listen to the speeches free. (laughs) Told you I was a nerd. And um, I think I fell in love with it there and I picked up some casual work in the ACT Legislative Assembly and a little bit on the hill in Parliament House and then I had a year as student president at ANU and that kind of consumed every part of me. I cannot describe to you how self-important I was and how much (laughs) I thought that the world uh, depended on me being a good student president, um, which is very worrying looking back. Um, And then at the end of that year, I... Oh, I'm going to sound so up myself. I was so worried about just going back to being an ordinary student. I was like, well, that won't be fulfilling enough for me because I've just had this glorious year where I've worked full time as well as studied and I have to do something better. And um, a friend told me about this job that was going in Kevin Rudd's office. And so I applied and then I cold called to be like, just checking you got my resume. I had so much confidence that I do not have now. And I somehow stumbled into that job. I still don't quite understand why. (laughs) Did you have to change parts of yourself to fit into that environment? It has such a reputation, I think, working in politics and working in those kind of offices. Um, It was certainly a shock. But Mm. I think for me, the biggest shock was I'd never had a full-time grown-up job before. (laughs) And I went into a really extreme version of that. And so I went from being this, you know, having this student president role where I was very important, right? Or at least I felt very important. I had a staff. I had this pretty important. enormous budget. That's I, very important. I had stuff to do and I felt, you know, I was, but I was the sort of top of this tiny, tiny, tiny yeah. pyramid, right? And then suddenly I was the bottom of this freaking enormous pyramid. And I'm talking like bottom of the bottom. <laughs> and I did the lowliest, most rubbish jobs in that office. And... I also went from, you know, being a uni student where your hours are your own and you're pretty flexible. Wake up at midday every day. Yeah, to waking (laughs) up at quarter past three every day. And I I think that was more of the shock than anything else at the start. Um, And then I, it was only as I kind of kept working at Parliament House and progressed through the ranks and ended up in Kate Ellis's office when she was a minister that I started seeing how differently 
women at Parliament House, whether they were members of Parliament or whether they were staff, were treated to the men. What did you see? Well, at the staff level, um, women tended to hold the more junior positions or admin-related positions, and men would hold the more influential positions. They were more likely to be chiefs of staff or more likely to be the big political advisors who were calling strategy shots and things like that. I think it's always interesting to look at Parliament in question time next to it's interesting to me. Uh, <laughs> next to all of the politicians are the advisors box for each side. And they're really senior staff sitting in those advisors box. It's still rare to see a woman. It's still rare. And so even as we improve in a whole bunch of different representative facets of the parliament, often we employ women at really good numbers, but they're not at the top or they're not at the decision-making point. And that had a really big impact. I dealt with a lot of young guys with big egos. Did that frustrate you to a point where you thought, I'm going to leave? Or was it that another opportunity came its way and you thought, this seems right? No, I wasn't frustrated to the point I, I wanted to leave, partly because I was working for Kate. Yeah. And she was, you know, she was only about 10 years older than me. And she hired a lot of senior women. Um, most of the time I worked for Kate, uh, her chiefs of staff were women. Uh, most of the senior people in the office were women. Uh, the deputy chief of staff was always a woman. Um and she, I think, really was very deliberate in her hiring in that she wanted to not only have the best person for the job, whoever it was, but she also wanted to give people a chance who might not otherwise have been given one. So I think we were protected from it internally. For me, I, I think it was a combination of two things. The first was that I had been put forward for a promotion that I didn't get and Kate had backed me for the promotion and I had been acting as chief of staff I think for about nine of the 12 months previous and when it got put to the government staffing committee which is this really senior group like the chief of staff they to the prime serious. minister <laughs> the chief of staff to the prime minister sits on it and stuff but to appoint a chief of staff they have to sign off and they basically said to Kate she's too young how old were you then to be going for a chief of staff job look admittedly on reflection <laughs> I was age. far too young if you say it's our age I'll... I was 25 oh my god and they decided they decided I was too young, which is, look, How I do you think look back entirely on it? fair. <laughs> mm. And I go, I should never have had that job. But what was different was that there were a lot of young blokes that weren't a dissimilar age who could were allowed to do that job. Where age wasn't even a conversation for and them. And the fact that my they'd let me act for so long, it was kind of like you can do the job as long as nobody knows you've got yeah. the job. Yeah, it's like as it's long like, as we don't formally recognise you. We'll I've just done it, it for almost a year, guys, yeah. and nothing went wrong. And I think I got frustrated and I think Kate was frustrated on my behalf and when I saw that the Gillard government was unlikely to win, <laughs> I, I was quite pragmatic and went, well, you know, there's about to be several thousand people with exactly the same skill set as me all looking for a job. I better get one now. Yeah. So tell us about how the Mamma Mia thing came about because you were at the helm of what was then definitely the leading voice of women. How Did you know that that was what the job was going to be? Did you kind of just jump and see what happened? No. And look, I, I don't know if it was the leading voice of women when I yeah. rocked up. Well, like, it wasn't when was... you were there, but you probably were one of the key people that made it the leading platform Oh, that's very nice. I don't know. It was, um, it was teeny tiny when I um, went to work there, like – we, the editorial staff were all in one room and there were four of us, um, <laughs> including me. Um, so, and one was part-time. Uh, so there weren't many of us. Like the whole office was about, I think, about 15 people when I came along. Compared to now, I think it's 100 plus, or at least it was when I, when I departed a few years later. Um, so it was small and I don't think I had any knowledge of content and I had no knowledge of digital. Um, but I think I had a good understanding of what people look for, what people click on and what people want to read. And that kind of saw me through along with the politics work ethic of just never sleeping. Mm. Uh, for those unaware, Jam was – you were a boss for a hot second. You say you were Zara a month. And I, I just missed – We were interns yes. while you were there. No, I and I think I had just been hired I think we might have just left. hired you. Yeah. yeah. Just I, moved, yeah. I was just a blip on the radar. I was still a little <laughs> intern minion. But, yeah, just missed you. What were your highlights at Mamma Mia? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, oh, this is going to sound so corny. But the highlights are the people I met. You know, um, I have I made friendships I will have forever working there. Um, people I remain incredibly close to and people I really care about. Um, 
the highlights for me were the opportunity to work really closely with young, ambitious women and watch them just take off. And there were so many things I loved about that job and I was really, really happy there. Um, and I was proud of how fast it grew and I was proud of all the things it achieved. And it, it did. Like I remember one year we had 1,000% readership growth. It was just like it was bonkers through that time. But the thing that I loved most about that job was managing people. It's something I really like doing. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm okay at it. I, pro- I, think I, I think I have been really good at it in the past. And I was so proud of watching this. Like it was just like these superstars who would come in often, you know, like straight out of uni and really unsure and not knowing what they were doing. And then they'd leave and they'd go into these amazing gigs later. And it was always a baptism of fire in there because it was so fast paced. But I was really proud of what all of those individuals became. I think there was this energy as well. I know that in my experience in the earlier years that I was there, there was this energy that everyone was so creative and it was really uh, prioritised that you were always thinking of new ideas and thinking outside the box and doing something differently. And very much like a yes place to work. I remember when I started there and if there was an idea, people would just Mm. say, yeah, sure, try it. I mean, it could crash and burn, but try it. Yeah. There was a real uh, sense of like throw shit against the wall and see if it sticks, right? And if it doesn't, we'll get rid of it. We won't do it again. What did you learn about women in that role? I mean, you were clearly at the helm of shaping what a lot of women were talking about in the country. What did you learn about what sort of the greater audience wanted? Oh, gosh. I think um, I learned a huge amount from Mia Friedman, definitely. And I've definitely learned a lot from all of the bosses I've had. And I think for better or worse, a lot of them are still a voice in my head at work. And I learn a ton in terms of putting yourself in the audience's shoes. I think Mia really taught me to edit content for the audience rather than editing it for myself or my peers. Um, You know, don't run content to impress people you want to impress. Run content that your audience need and want. And don't be ashamed of what they need and want. I think I learned a lot about sort of myths in the media I think we can really get carried away with what people are into and what they care about in a way that's not necessarily true particularly online I'm not explaining that well I'll give you an example if you if you've gone to a website and you were going to run 10 stories every day and one day you run a story about smashed avocado and a story about the Kardashians and they do better than the other eight stories you happen to have that day so you go, oh, interesting. And two weeks later, you run another story about Kardashians and another story about avocados. And they do really well again. And then you go, why are we only doing one avocado and one Kardashian? We could do three Kardashians and three avocados. And then you're giving people 10 stories still, but six of them are Kardashians and avocados. So surprise, surprise, they click on that. Not because they necessarily wanted it, because it's all you're giving them. And I'm pro-avocado and I'm not fussed by the Kardashians. I am neutral Kardashian. We have a, we have a Kardashian question coming your way. Soon. Sure. I am neutral on the Kardashians. Pos- I, I even like, I, I reckon occasionally I skew positive. Um, but just generally no problem. Jackson. But we, I think we make assumptions about what people want and I think that's a broader problem in the media. We were talking just before we got jumped on air about politics and so many people feeling excluded from political coverage. It's not because young women don't care about issues. Of course they do. Young women care about climate change. They care about energy policy. They care about how much they're going to be taxed. They care about childcare costs. They care about all sorts of things, how we fund education. But it needs to be presented in a way that doesn't make you feel dumb and excluded and like you're not part of that conversation. And so much of the way we write about issues like that is to say, this is for us over here and you over there don't get to understand this stuff. Like almost florid language that it either feels exclusive or you feel like you're being dumbed down and spoken to like you're a child. Yeah. Up next, we ask Jamila all about what it's like interviewing Kim Kardashian and then chat about how you navigate being diagnosed with a brain tumour when so much of your work plays out in the public eye. But first, here's a message from our sponsors. So who in that time, I mean, you've interviewed everybody from Bill Gates to Kim Kardashian. What's sort of the... the favourite interview you've done and sort of what was the biggest <laughs> flop? Um, I've got, oh, my favourite? That's really hard. Okay, I, I can I have two? Of yeah, course. For different reasons. Go for it. Um, <laughs> favourite interview I have ever done was for Sydney Writers Festival with Julia Gillard. 
just after her book came out. And I've interviewed Julia a bunch of times, but that was really raw, really new, and it was a really big audience. And I felt like she was honest in a way I hadn't heard her be before. So I was really proud of that interview. I was also seven months pregnant and convinced I was about to go into labour. Um, <laughs> and it was just my adrenaline making the baby nervous? kick. You would have been so nervous. So nervous. Yeah. And my adrenaline's pumping and so it's just going straight to the baby and the baby's going <laughs> kick, 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 kick. And when Julia saw me, she just looked at me. And I was quite a big pregnant lady and she just saw me and went, oh, my God. And you could tell she was like, I'm going to have to deliver a child on stage. This is a disaster. Um, so that one was really really amazing and then I did an interview which I don't even know where it ended up but I did an interview about six years ago seven years ago when I was when Mamma Mia was still small with uh, Claire Bowditch who is now my best mate and so that's that's kind of cool. Is that how you met through that interview? Yeah that was the first day we ever met. Amazing. I used to go to see her concerts when I was like oh, 17. So you're a fangirl and now you're a I was a massive fangirl. I'm still a fangirl. Don't tell Bowditch because she'll get a big head. But I am still a fangirl. So what was Kim Kardashian like to interview? Hard? We uh, did go back and read your story oh from 2012 <laughs> this morning. We were sitting together. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to look up this interview and read it. It was, look, it was before she was as like pervasive in terms of pop culture as she is now. So in my defense, I didn't really know who she was that well. <laughs> like I knew I knew of her, but I didn't know much about her. And I knew there were lots of sisters. This so this is like post sex tape but pre like dominating the whole world. Yeah. Um pre children. Pre Instagram as well. Yes. So it just wasn't as big a deal at the time. But at the same time, it was the most intense interview. There were so many rules. I was given nine minutes in her presence. And there were about 20 different things on the list that I was not allowed to ask about under any circumstances. And then there were all these diet shake products that I had to ask about no matter what. They were trim fit, I think, or something to do with trim. Don't go buy that, guys. I'm not saying that as an ad. (laughs) (laughs) This is not an endorsement. Um, And I just, everything I asked her, I just got these really weird answers. Like I asked her about fashion because I thought her clothes were interesting and I thought, you know, this is a at the time that wasn't a body we were seeing in Hollywood that much, this super curvy um, kind of body, like with this, especially like this was before asses were a thing, right? Before everyone wanted it, like these, you know, peach shaped bums. And I remember just being, this woman is hot. I'm going to ask her about fashion and clothes and how she dresses. And I remember asking her for predictions for what would be big next season or something. I was trying to sound like I knew what I was talking about. And she said, oh, I think a pant. I love a pant. And I remember being like, aren't pants like always in? Like what else are people? Oh, God. They're just a general staple. Hey, I think what we know about a lot of women in the public eye that have opinions is it's sort of inevitable that at some point – you will find yourself the centre of some sort of storm, some sort of viral storm. And there's been a couple of times where you have been the centre of them yourself. What's that experience like? Um, You two have probably had this happen to yourselves by now, I'm guessing. Yeah, and also bracing for it. Because yeah, it and getting of, ready because yeah, it gets bigger. Yeah. yeah, and it's often not necessarily a case of, of bad intentions in, in any way. It's often just a case of words being taken out of context. Mm. Is that what you've found? Particularly your yeah. interview, uh, not interview, but your uh, when you're on the panel on the project with Steve Price. Yes. I think that was one that most people would probably or not even remember. But That yeah, was, was on the front page big. of a lot of papers, yeah. which I think was probably more a sign. It was the day after Donald Trump run, yeah. won. And, like, for that to be a story on, like, what was the biggest news story in the world, I think just was the Australian newspapers being like, we need an Aussie way in. I know this random people are just disagreeing with each other, which was just ridiculous. Mm. Um, That was a really weird day for me, the day Trump won. Um, I had been commissioned by my boss at the time uh, at news.com to write a piece for that day on what Hillary Clinton's victory meant for women. There were a lot of those pre-prepped pieces. Yes. So I started writing it while watching the votes coming in and the votes were coming in. The early returns were good. Oh, the percentage chance of winning, I remember being 85-15 or something like that. Yeah, even as they started being counted. I was really positive. I'm like tap, tap, tapping away on my laptop at 10am in the morning and then it starts going south and further south and all these people are texting me and I'm texting back and going, what's going on? What's going on? And by the afternoon, I'm like, I don't need to write this piece. I don't know what I'm doing. And um, look, I had a couple of gins because I felt not very happy. <laughs> and then I got a call from the project saying, can you come on and talk? We we just realised we don't have enough 
women reflecting tonight on what's happened. And I mean, that's not okay. And I was like, of course, of course. And uh, I went on and I think I was bolshier than I normally am. I usually try and be as polite as I can while being as firm as I can. Because as a woman, you always have to be, don't you? Yeah. And I wasn't that night. I got a bit grumpy at Steve Price when he jumped in and answered a question that was put to me and I disagreed with him. And uh, it just went everywhere. I think it became this – because it was this young woman of colour and this older white man (laughs) – you know, it was such a great microcosm of what was going on more broadly. I still don't know why anyone cared on such a big day, but that went bonkers. Did and you care in that moment, you know, in the days afterwards when you are the story on the front page of the yeah, paper? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I had no idea it would be a story, yeah. I think, which is the same with most social media blow-ups. It wasn't until the next day that I was like, oh, wow, everyone on the internet hates me. Mm. Um, it was, yeah, it definitely took me aback and I was quite overwhelmed. And at that point, my um, partner took over my social media and just was like, get off, not good for you, I'm dealing with this. It's interesting. I, I, I look back on so many of those little and big blow-ups. I've, I've had a few. Um, and I think what hurts is when you fear there's a granule of truth in what people are saying. So when people say you're stupid, you were overreacting, you were screechy, you acted like a little girl, you were rude, those things you kind of go, oh, Maybe, maybe I was. Mm. Maybe I did do that. Maybe I did, did do this. And then people jump on board with, because you're a woman, jump on board with the inevitable aesthetic criticism, like you're fat, you're this, you're that. And then you go, oh, maybe I am all these things that they're, maybe I shouldn't wear blue, like they said, you know, like, <laughs> oh God. And it worries you. Whereas like the kind of crazy criticism that you know isn't true doesn't really bother you. Slides off you. Yeah. yeah like I, I have a Muslim surname and I often get called an in, uh, a terrorist on the internet and you just kind of read it and go you know I'm offended because of the assumption around religion absolutely but at the same time at a micro level at the me level rather than the macro level I'm like well no no I'm not (laughs) like there's no part of me going oh shit am I you know like (laughs) am I a terrorist definitely clear on that (laughs) one you know this is something that Zara and I have been grappling with over the last three months yeah being the terrorist (laughs) mostly um that's a big thing for us but also we do when we do get those criticisms about what we're doing uh often people accuse us of doing the opposite of what we're setting out to do which is open up discussions about feminism and be able to talk about dumb things in a smart way but when someone comes to us and says we're doing the opposite or we're woman hating is something that we've gotten in the past that does really affect us because it makes yeah it makes us both sit back and go well hang on if we're doing the opposite of what we're promising that we were going to do is it worth it? Yeah. Should we be sitting in front of these microphones every week? And it's not like it happens all the time, but when it does happen, particularly if you've had a bad day or if you're in an anxious mood that day, it can really hit you hard. Yeah. I think for me and what I used to try and counsel the team at Mamma Mia when this used to happen, when they'd write things and they'd, they'd blow up, um, I had a few pieces of advice that I think are helpful to people. The first one was I made a list of people whose criticism I would care about and I actually had photos of them and I used to make all the team members do that and they didn't have to necessarily be people you knew like Hillary Clinton was on my list Um, and I could never really call her and be like Steve Price hates me Hills did I screw up Um, she would have been on my side anyway Um, but I, I would have my 20 people and my dad was on there my friend Claire was on there my friend Stella Young at the time was on there and Whenever I had one of those big blow-ups or those big criticisms, I would mentally run it by, in my head, sometimes in person, what those people would say. And if one of them would go, yeah, Jam, I think maybe, you you know, best of intentions, babe, but you screwed up, um, then I probably owed someone an apology and I probably needed to do better and I needed to buckle down. And I think we do need to be open to criticism. Most people respond to criticism with a level of defensiveness. And I think what you always have to do is take pause and go, okay, who is delivering this criticism? Why are they delivering the criticism? And is there something I can learn from and be better with? At the same time, and as the counter to that, (laughs) if you put something out into the world, there will be people who hate it. Mm. And if you need proof of that, there are websites dedicated to hating puppies, to dedicated to hating rainbows, saying that they hate Beyonce. Like, I mean, come <laughs> on, people. Like, these are universal agreement topics. And there are people that hate them. There are people that hate them. There are people in the world who believe the Holocaust didn't happen. So yeah, there are crazy people who will just pick on you. 
and you do not have to give them the time of day. No, it's a very good point. And I think it, it, especially for all of us who live our lives online and are constantly copying everything or feeling like we're comparing ourselves or criticism is just rife on those kinds of platforms. Yeah. It's so important for us to remember. For you, when you were, you know, a mentor at Mamma Mia and very high up there and, and were killing it work-wise, what was it like for, for motherhood to intersect with that and for you to then have to, to work out what your career was and what it was going to be? Because you did fall pregnant when you were editor-in-chief. Yes. Chief. yes. Yeah. Um, it was, a, it was a disaster. <laughs> I want to have a really positive, like, you can do it all, everyone, story. Uh, my story doesn't illustrate that. Um, I, my son was a happy accident, um, like very much a shock. Um, that was not something I, I was not planning to have kids for another five or six years. So it was a massive shock. My husband and I had just gotten engaged uh, when he was conceived and I had no idea I was pregnant for quite a while. Um I'd actually been on a margarita bender the night before I found out. But he seems to be fine. And I didn't, Healthy, happy kid. I didn't know. With a pension for I margaritas. No, I absolutely did not know. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't – I think I was – I wasn't young to have a baby necessarily, but I was younger than my mates, if that makes sense. So I fell pregnant at 28 and just none of my friends had kids, right? I, I, it's just the nature of the friendship groups I, I was in. And so I didn't really know what to expect and I was so work-focused at that time in my life. I was still working in Sydney four days a week and then going home on the weekends to Melbourne to be with my partner. Like work was more important to me than anything else. Sorry, Jess. And <laughs> so I just, I just kept being like that. And up and I went on maternity leave the day I went into labour um, and he was born on his due date, so I never took any leave. And I was so focused all I thought about was not preparing to have a baby all I thought about was preparing my workplace for me to have a baby like I was focusing on who would be in charge and who would run what and how to get things in place and writing down all the trying to write down everything in my head that uh, they might need when they couldn't just ask me I remember assuring them I will be back online within a few days just do not panic and then you know I'll take three months off maximum all this sort of stuff and then I think as a, partly as a result of that and being someone who really defined myself by work, when this baby came along who I'd admittedly not really prepared for, um, I just didn't know what to do because like, I defined myself by being good at my job and suddenly I didn't have a job to be good at and I really went, well, what's the point of me? Like what, what, what am I doing? I remember around day nine or ten my husband coming home from work and I screamed at him and said I had ruined my life. Really? Yeah, I take it back. <laughs> but <laughs> I did. Happy accident, happy accident. I, I did. Think that's, that's how I felt. But that's, I think, what a lot of young women, especially young women now who are told that to be career-focused and who feel very career-focused, that it would be the end of the world if you felt pregnant because what is your identity then? I mean, you are the perfect example of what happens and how your career can grow and get better despite that and with it. But even still, I can imagine a lot of young women having identity crises about that. Oh, yeah. And I think our workplaces and our governments are still not very good at, at making it easy for women to move in and out of the workforce around children. And I think we need to get better at that for men as well. That That's the next step in the solution, is that once we normalise men moving in and out of the workforce around children, then it's just something that happens to people we employ. Mm. And it's just the job of employers to think about that stuff rather than employers being like, oh, God, and a 27-year-old woman, she's not going to last yeah. long. We might only have her for three years and it's just going to cost us money. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, of course. I think one of my favourite pieces from you ever as well was written shortly after that probably nine or ten day stage. I think it was a few weeks after you had taken leave and you wrote about how much motherhood had changed you and how you weren't sure when you were going to come back anymore and that it was yeah. kind of a open letter to the readers to say, I don't know. Like, I, yeah. this is so new for me. I'm completely thrown in the deep end and I can't tell you when I'm going to be back. Yeah. That was such a good story. Um, what was that decision then? Because you did then end up leaving Mamma Mia to go do your own thing. How was that? Yeah, I, I came back to work um, still quite quickly. Mm. <laughs> still, I think it was around the three-month mark, something like that. It's all a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> and I came back four days a week. And uh, the other days were handled partly by nannies who would bring Ruffy to me to feed mm -hmm. and partly by my husband who went part-time at that point um, so that I could be close to full-time. And I think I lasted eight weeks. Um, and I remember feeling 
I don't think I've ever felt that guilty because I felt like I was letting all of my team down, not just as their boss, who they wanted to have around, but also as like I was one of the older ones in the group and I was one of the first ones to have children. And I felt like I was just, I'd set it up like you could do both. And then I was showing that you couldn't. And I felt like I was just letting them all down. (laughs) And I felt like I was letting the readers down in that department. Like I had a lot of guilt. But I would say about half of it was around how much I'd changed as a person and half of it was around how much that company changed. Um, you both worked there and it was such a – with startups, they move at such a ferocious pace that three months out is a lifetime mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in, in that company. And um, I came back and I didn't recognise it and it, I didn't recognise my job and I didn't, I didn't like it. So I think it was a bit of both, yeah. And so at that point I um, – I just I decided it wasn't for me. The last few years have been huge in the course of your life. You've had a baby last year, you, and, and, and this year have battled a brain tumour. Do you feel necessarily different, like a different person, having had all those changes, or do you feel like the fundamentals are saying your priorities might be different? A little bit both, I think. That's a, such a cop-out answer. But a little <laughs> bit of both. I, um, I'm definitely... One of the things they say when you face like a life or death kind of moment, and I've had a few <laughs> in the last 18 months, is that you come out of it and you reevaluate your life. And you know those people who like, I go, I'm going to quit my job and explore the Antarctic because I've realized that's what I was meant to do. And, you know, people who like leave their partners and they totally change things. I came out of the first time around certainly from that really horrible experience of brain surgery and realizing I, I was going to be okay hopefully um the opposite I came out going I just want to stay alive to live this life like I came out of it being really smug and being like my life is really good no one's allowed to take it like I just want more time with my amazing kid and my amazing partner I have got the best group of friends I have work that sustains me and excites me like I just I just want to be alive to do it um so I didn't have any grand, like, change things up kind of moments. So in that sense, I think it, it hasn't changed me much because it hasn't changed my priorities in that sense or what I wanted to be doing with my time. But also you can't not be scarred both physically and emotionally by that kind of thing. And I think I went through that partly with, with Ruffy's birth and adjusting to being a mum and work not being my number one priority. And And when I say that, like work didn't take a backseat. It just kind of went, you know, it's on par <laughs> with the child. Fair. Um, that sounds about right. <laughs> um, and then also with the um, health stuff in the last year, I think, I've, I think I've probably got more time for people. I think I have always been someone who expects everyone to work at a very high pace, a very hard pace, and I can be quite exacting and quite critical when things don't work. And I think parenting necessarily makes you less so. And uh, I think going through sort of health stuff, I think it does improve your empathy. Mm. Um, I don't think I've got some empathetic superpower or anything, but I don't think I was very empathetic before. So maybe I'm like reaching like human average now. (laughs) Um, I definitely, um, I, I think it makes you see the world from other people's perspective more. You've got a really big profile in the media and you've got tens of thousands of followers over Instagram and Facebook. How did you navigate that? I guess when something so personal and so serious happens to you, yeah. what was the conversations that you had or even the internal mental process you had about choosing to share this with the world? Yeah. Um, I, I waited quite a while. It's the thing I think from the outside people go, oh, my God, she's got a brain tumour. And they think you were diagnosed that morning and you went, Instagram. <laughs> Some people probably would do that yeah. these days. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe. That wasn't me. Um I, I I let myself get used to the idea for quite a while and decide how much I wanted to share. And I ended up going, okay, I work in the media. I'm on TV. I'm on radio. People see me a lot. People read my writing. And I am going to have to disappear for a while because I've got this huge recovery. And I felt like I couldn't just disappear without explanation. Mm. Otherwise, I would have had to actively lie mm. on social media. And I try really hard to be honest I certainly don't share everything about my life but I try I, I don't lie if that makes sense I just don't tell everything because 
you have a personal and a private life. Um, but I felt like I owed people an explanation for disappearing from television shows they watched and things like that. So that's why I decided to tell people what was going on. And then um, I think I, I, I pre oh God, this is so sad. I pre-wrote a post to go up after it had all happened that my husband and my sister put up and um, uh, so people would know what happened. And then I kind of didn't talk about it much for quite a while until I started getting all these people following me who were sick mm. and who would say, you got better so quickly. And I started getting all these DMs that were like, you're amazing, you recovered instantly. And I, I suddenly had this moment of realisation, like this is no better than posting the no filter perfect, yeah. you know, the, the filtered perfect life and pretending you're always happy and well-dressed and, you know, with a face full of makeup on all the time. This is just a different version. And for other people who are really sick, who are now coming to me because it, you feel so alone when you're really sick and they're like, oh, my God, there's someone like me. By not talking about recovery at all, I was making everyone feel worse. Mm. Like they were rubbish because they weren't recovering as quickly as me. I just wasn't telling anyone mm. and I was just posting old photos. So after that, I would do the odd thing. Like I, I try not to let it be the main thing, but I've been honest about the recovery. And then when I got diagnosed again, I let people know what was going on then. And now and then I'll kind of jump on and tell people what's happening or give a bit of an insight. Um particularly if I think I can be helpful. Mm. Yeah. And how are you feeling now? Um, I feel really good um, or as good as you can feel this soon after. Um, But I, yeah, everything's changed a lot. People think of, um, people think of brain tumours and this is certainly how I used to think, so this isn't a criticism, and they go, oh, my God, is it cancer? Zara and I made that mistake. Mm. <laughs> no, everyone does. It's fine. They go, oh, my God, is it cancer? Because people know how horrible the survival mm. statistics are for brain cancer. And if you say no, like in my case, they go, oh, you're fine. Mm. And you're like, things can kill you in your brain that are cancer. Mm. Um, and also I think people think once the surgery is done and you've recovered, that's it. Um, they don't realise that there are implications that come with that. So um, I, basically half my hormones don't work anymore, um, which sounds like if you don't know a lot about the body that you're like, oh, what, you don't have estrogen, testosterone, but there are lots more hormones, everybody. Mm. Um, and hormones control all sorts of things. Hormones control your water balance, your ability to create adrenaline, um, your ability to breastfeed, your, you know, there's a whole lot of things. For children, they impact your ability to grow. Um, so for me, it's the ability to build muscle, all sorts of things like that. Um, and I will have that forever. And I've lost a lot of sight in, in one of my eyes. So, and that's just sort of the start of it all. So I think it's, um, I'm still in a very much in a period of adjustment. And I think the mental leap I'm trying to make at the moment is to stop seeing this as one horrible thing that happened to me once and we fix that and more recognising that for me, it looks like this will be something I deal with my whole life the new normal type of thing yeah and I don't know how long that life's going to be as a result Mm. yeah we finish every episode jam with the same question which is and I imagine this has been something that's been very important to you in the last couple of years is who are the kinds of women that you look up to and sort of have a real impact on who you are and how you respond to certain scenarios who are they for you and can we follow them do we know who they are (laughs) (laughs) um in terms of women to follow um I think some of the women who I've really looked up to and felt have helped me a lot in the last couple of years have particularly been Claire Bowditch, who is my best mate, but who is also just as giving and lovely and warm and wonderful on social media as she is in real life. I'm just very lucky and that I get more of her. Um, Lee Sales has been absolutely amazing. So has Julia Baird, who's uh, had breast cancer herself and kind of has a particular understanding of what I've been going through. Um, And so has Susan Carland, who... Tell you what, when you get sick, so many people people make you lasagna to the point that you really start to hate effing lasagna, right? And, like, I'm not trying to diss everyone who was very kind and made food for me. But, like, make something else. Yeah. But Susan's lasagna, I could live on for the rest of my life. Ooh. could live on for the rest of my life. And she has many <laughs> skills and talents beyond lasagna making. <laughs> um, so they're women to follow. And then, for me, my mates have got me through. Yeah. Um, including mates who... Uh, probably weren't close mates beforehand. It's really interesting to see who comes to the fore and who kind of takes a back seat um, when tragedy happens. 
and what you learn about yourself and your people in your life when tragedy happens. Um, and I think the one person that has stood out massively for me, certainly recently, uh, who you can follow is Lady with MS, which is my friend Astrid, who interviewed me for her podcast. She hosts The Garrett, which is the Victorian State Library podcast. That was a great episode. I yeah, to that. yeah, and she is absolutely fabulous. And she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis um, about six years ago when she was the same age as I was when I got sick. And after that interview, she kind of reached out to me and said, hey, you know, like, if you ever want to talk, say the word. And I remember I wrote this pompous, stupid email back that was, at the time, I was trying to view being sick as something that happened once to me and was done. And so I kind of went, oh, thanks so much. And, you know, that's really kind. But in my head was going, yeah, lady, you're sick forever. And I'm just sick for now. And then about two months later, realized, oh, I'm sick forever too. That's awkward. And (laughs) sent her an email and kind of said, sorry. Um, and would you talk to me? And uh, we went to lunch and lunch turned into dinner and we've become incredibly good friends since. And uh, it's amazing what that kind of camaraderie can do. I think regardless of what your life is like, regardless of what you're going through, having someone who doesn't just care about you but who has a level of understanding of having gone through something, who has that lived experience is is next level. Champ, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of the kinds of things that you have. I know our listeners should get onto your book if they haven't read it already, not just lucky, I know. I mean, oh my God, the listeners would love They actually that would book. because for you as like a public mentor for young women in Korea, I think mm. that's a space that not many people feel and your advice is so sort of practical and helpful and I think they would love that. And we've also got lots of young mums who listen to the podcast. So The Motherhood is a book that you edited. Yes, it is. So I wrote one chapter mm. and then I went and grabbed a lot of wonderful women to write another chapter. Do not read that book if you're pregnant. It is <laughs> horrifying if you are pregnant and it is very reassuring after you've had a baby. Okay, that makes sense. But thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this very special In Conversation episode of Shameless. As we did mention in the interview, if you are a millennial woman, make sure you grab a copy of her career manifesto, Not Just Lucky. And if you're a new mum, go check out The Motherhood. Otherwise, you will find her tweeting and on Instagram at Jamila Rizvi. As for us, well, I would think by now you know where to find us, but I'll tell you anyway. Come to the Facebook group to chat. We are at Shameless Podcast Community. Just search in the Facebook bar and come and have some fun. Otherwise, we're on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. And then we'll be seeing you on Monday for our regular programming. Thanks so much, guys. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.